At Heartland 2022, American political activist and writer Professor Angela Davis talked with British journalist Rennie Edolodge, author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. The two discussed the concept of abolition. They investigate how abolition is not simply a strategy of abolishing oppressive laws and structures, but actually holds a restorative potential of rethinking and thus creating meaningful change. You're listening to a Heartland podcast. As it's just been mentioned, my name is Rennie Edo-Lodge and I'm so honoured today to be speaking to, I think, one of my inspirations, really. One of the people who, you know, was one of the early you know, black women, you know, political thinkers who seriously influenced my work, um, Angela Davis. So let's just give her a round of applause just because. <laughs> Angela, would you like to greet the audience? Just give them a shout out, say, say hello. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, and do we get a soundtrack for the conversation? A soundtrack? Oh, I'm yeah. listening to the music. <laughs> what is the deal with the music? Would you prefer it off? Yeah? Is that possible? Sound people? Oh, it's outside. Okay. Oh, I see. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, well, we'll just have to project our voices then. Um, all right, let's get cracking. So... Andrew, I've just finished um, reading slash listening, because I'm an audiobook person, even though I write books, um, to your autobiography. And when I was reading it, I was really struck by how much you, have, you had experienced, even at that young age. Um, I don't know how many of you in the audience have read it, but um, when was it first published again? It was published in 1974. And how old were you around that time? Well, I think I was still in my late 20s, early 30s. I, I was uh, released from jail when I was 28, and that is when uh, Tony Morrison persuaded me to write the autobiography. It took about a year and a half, uh, so I think I was probably 30. But you know, when one is young, one doesn't realize one is young. <laughs> one only want, thinks of oneself as young uh, after a certain process of aging sets in. Uh, uh, so uh, no one could have told me then that uh, I was young. Let me put it that way. Well, you'd, I mean, I was struck by just the, um, the life that you'd lived even at that point. Um, you know, so my first question is really that you've, you've lived a life. You have really been involved in the struggle. Um, do you consider yourself a survivor? You know, I think I'm going to move the chair a bit because I feel like half the audience is uh, behind I me. So. I think that's fair. Okay, a little is this bit better? more opened up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, well, 
Yes, I am a survivor. Um, and I, I think of myself explicitly as a survivor, given the fact that so many people who were involved in those struggles uh, have passed on. Uh, and the work, that, um, the work that I've always done has been collective work. You know, whether uh, we're referring to the actual organizing and building organizations and building movements, or whether we're referring to writing. Uh, because I never claim the ideas uh, in my books to be individual ideas. They all came from an interaction uh, with other people who were thinking and organizing and, and, and struggling. And so I, I like to think of myself not only as a survivor, but as a witness for those who have not survived, uh, as, as a person who can remind um, others of the work that uh, people whose names have not necessarily been publicly recognized, the work that they have done to um, make this moment possible. Absolutely. Um, yeah, round of applause. <laughs> I mean, I'm riffing here, but, you know, having come away from your thoughts in your autobiography, I'm, I feel like it's the word survivor, it's both literal and metaphorical in that, you know, when you were falsely accused... Um, you were falsely accused and imprisoned in a climate in which if a jury had found you guilty, you know, you would have been on death row. You know, it's frightening to think of, of what we may have lost. Um, so, but on that topic, I think, you know, part of the reason I really wanted to discuss, you know, the idea of abolition with you today is because um, something that I really came away from not just your autobiography, but your entire body of work is, you know, our understanding of what a political prisoner is. Um, and I think in the strictest sense, you know, when you were imprisoned um, and, you know, falsely accused, um, you were the classic definition of a political prisoner, right? Like, jailed for your political action. Um, jailed because you were, you know, treated poorly because you were teaching, you were a communist, you know, you know, you were what we would now understand to be an anti-racist, but perhaps you would have called it a black liberationist at the time. Um, but you speak, I think, so clearly about the idea of a political prisoner being, you know, expanded to black and brown people more broadly. Um, and I wondered if you might be able to elaborate for our audience, you know, what you mean by that. Well, that question also provides an opportunity for me to uh, point to the collective origin of, of this um, expansion of the category of political prisoners. Uh, and, um, yeah, um, we had had the tendency to assume that a political prisoner was a person who was literally arrested um, and jailed for 
their political beliefs and political affiliations. But thanks to people inside, like George Jackson, I'll I'll mention George Jackson uh, um, as an example. Uh, He became politicized as a result of his own incarceration and as a consequence of identifying with struggles unfolding on on, on, on the outside. And so, when he originally went to jail, um, when he was originally convicted, his sentence was one year to life. California had uh, what we called then indeterminate sentencing. Uh, and this was for having participated in um, a robbery of a gas station that yielded $70. So, of course, he ended up spending the rest of his life behind bars. But he argued that we also needed to think about the prison as an institution of racist repression and therefore expand our sense of what it meant to uh, be involved in struggles to free political prisoners. Uh, uh, So many other uh, women and men and... um, non-binary people, uh, I'll say retroactively, uh, uh, were behind bars uh, precisely because of their politicization as prisoners uh, and therefore should be considered political prisoners. But perhaps even more importantly, that insight uh, created the foundation for an abolitionist movement, created a foundation for uh, placing the prison itself in question as the institutionalization of racism and as one of the most dramatic structural examples of the way racism functions in our society. Absolutely. I mean, something that I feel like really clicked for me, you know, over the years of reading your work is drawing those connections between, you know, black and brown communities in particular um, living outside of prison in in spaces that are over-policed, policed to the point of almost militarized policing, right? Um, and then you can actually draw a clear line between that level of over-policing and over-criminalization to um, being over-represented in prisons, right? And so, you know, when I read your work, I, th- I think about the fact that the prison feels like the state's end game this, for marginalized people, right? For people who were never really that free on the outside in the first place. I mean, that's actually not a great way to phrase a question, but I guess my, my question is, you know, is, is this the critique that we're, well, I say we, you are making, you know, that prisons are the place where the state would prefer those over-policed, over-criminalized, um, over-surveilled communities Absolutely, yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But I I think what I want to add to uh, your very insightful description of the role that the prison uh, plays in our societies is the fact that uh, what we now call mass incarceration um, 
developed precisely during the uh, period of the emergence of global capitalism um, and the structural changes, uh, uh, the disestablishment of the welfare state, uh, uh, the privatization of health care, uh, the um, uh, increasing privatization of education. Uh, uh, so during the 1980s, um, as, um, and we, we have to remember to bring capitalism into the conversation because a lot of these developments aren't really um, understandable if we don't recognize the part that um, you know, capitalism plays. Capitalism is often the elephant in the room, right? <laughs> and, and so what was interesting, and, 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 and many of us were able to see this in the 90s, uh, what had happened uh, during the period when the numbers of, of people, particularly black and brown people, uh, um, you know, although I would say indigenous people are the most heavily incarcerated uh, population uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, but uh, the vast increase in the numbers of people behind bars, the surge in the construction of prisoners, of prisons rather, California, I think, uh, uh, went uh, from... Um, uh, a, a few prisons to from 12 prisons to 33 within a couple of years. Uh, and all over the country, uh, you began to see uh, uh, connections uh, between uh, uh, corporate concerns and prisons, uh, the, the communications industry, for example, the, the architecture, uh, architectural construction industry. And, and so it became clear that um, racial capitalism, I mean, we use the term racial capitalism now, but it ought to have been apparent precisely during that period as ever larger numbers of, of, of people of color and poor people are, were being directed towards prisons precisely at a time when uh, the, the the country, the state, but you know also the 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 the, uh, the 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 whole corporate structure refuse to attend to the needs of 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 um, people of color, of poor people, and so if you have a group of people who have lost their jobs because of the deindustrialization of the economy, uh, when you have people working in the auto industry, but, um, you know, auto const construction, manufacturing is increasingly shifting uh, towards countries in the global south, manufacturing is shifting. And what do all of these people do who are the first to be fired after they were the last to be hired? Uh, uh, and, you know, obviously, as now, as we're coming out of this uh, uh, pandemic and we see the numbers of people who have been evicted from their homes, uh, uh, who uh, are jobless as a consequence, and 
and now people are talking about the surge in crime, right? And therefore the need for more police. Uh, and it's so obvious, you know, why uh, people sometimes have to turn to desperate measures when they can no longer support themselves and their families. Uh, So I feel like, you know, you've done such incredible work in terms of, well, you and the movement that you're a part of, you know, really advancing this, you know, concept of abolishing police, abol abolishing prisons, and abolishing the idea of punitive, punitive measures to counter, essentially, social inequity, right? Um, and I feel like, post-June 2020, um, these ideas really made their way into the public imagination in a way that we've never seen before. Um, and I feel like, for those of us who like, are involved in progressive politics, consider ourselves on the left, like, sometimes we can really struggle to imagine like, what the world would be without those punitive measures, you know? I feel like I unfortunately, you know, for better and for worse, like come from a tradition where we're all about critique, critique, critique. <laughs> Not so great at like imagine what's different, what could, what could we actually build that's better, right? So it's like really clear to me that, you know, abolition requires imagination. And so I, I wanted to ask you, what would be your building blocks for an abolitionist world? Well, yeah, um, there is the, the um, immediate definition of abolition that has to do with tearing things down, right? Uh, and, and most people assume that that's basically what it's about. Uh, the, the prison police abolitionist movement um, uh, attempted to learn a great deal from uh, the failure to abolish slavery. The uh, putative abolition of slavery, uh, because of course uh, uh, we do have various proclamations and constitutional amendments that purported to get rid of slavery, uh, but um, we are still inhabiting a society that is thoroughly influenced uh, by aspects of slavery that were never placed into question during that uh, 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 purported uh, abolition of the institution. And, and I say that uh, because, um, as you pointed out, the imagination is really central here. It's not only about what we want to get rid of, but it is about... Um, and it's not so much a question of replacing the institution that we want to get rid of. Uh, because people often assume, well, you want to get rid of prisons, you want to get rid of police, you know, what, what will you place there uh, in, uh, uh, um, in return? As if the, the new institutions have to fit the exact footprint of, of, of the ones that we want to abolish. Uh, and so abolitionists ask the question, uh, not so much how do you get rid of this 
institution that we call prisons, or how do you get rid of this institution that we call police, but rather what kind of society would we need in order to render these institutions obsolete? Uh, so what would we need? And as soon as you ask that very broad question, um, the building blocks become apparent. Uh, uh, we need jobs, we need housing, we need health care. Of course, you know in the US, uh, health care is a commodity. So if you don't have the capacity to pay, then you die. Uh, we need, we need um, education. Uh, and there, you know, we need, we, we, we need a society in which uh, people learn how to value one another. Uh, we need a, a, a sense of self that is not individualistic, that is about a relationality with others. Uh, uh, and so um, that is where we begin. Uh, uh, it's not to say that we don't have to address questions of harm, but once we begin to respond to these larger questions, then it seems to me that we can explore um, non-punitive um, uh, uh, forms of justice, non-retributive forms of, uh, of justice, uh, transformative justice uh, rather than uh, retributive justice. Uh, uh, and then in relation to the police, we can explore uh, what we really need in order to feel safe and secure. Uh, so do we need you know, groups of armed human beings who are basically trained in how to use weapons? Uh, is that what we need when a person is involved in a psychiatric breakdown? Oh, you're absolutely it. right. Because what is bound to happen is that the person who really needs some kind of compassionate care is going to be killed. So these are the kinds of questions that um, uh, the abolitionist's imagination, if we want to talk in that way, uh, uh, these are the, the kinds of questions that, uh, that we like to pose and we like to, to explore. Um, it's also about revolution, let me put it that way. That too. <laughs> As you're talking, I'm thinking about, and you know, this happened after I, you know, came up with my questions, but I'm thinking about the horrifying school shooting that's happened recently and how there are some political responses to it on the American right that's saying that teachers need to be armed. And um, I'm shocked and frightened that some people might think that the solution to a tragedy such as that is to turn places of education into battlegrounds. You're right, you know, there needs to be a complete, you know, upending of understanding of, of how people are kept safe, you know. Um, and also, uh, Rene, I think it's important, I'm, I'm gonna try to bring capitalism into our conversation as, as much as I can. And it's the, in the US, it's the gun industry. 
that's behind all of this. There are more guns than there are human beings in the United States of America. And the gun industry uh, wants to, to uh, continue to expand uh, their customers. And as a matter of fact, during the pandemic, their sales uh, uh, skyrocketed. Uh, because everybody was rushing out to get a gun because guns have become symbolic of safety and security. The same problem that we're talking about in terms of the police. Absolutely, and it's unbelievably illogical because you can't shoot COVID, you know? <laughs> but that's what people reach to at a time of social fear. Um, so I wanted to ask a question. I, this has been on my mind recently like space and place. Um, I'm a child of the internet, right, uh, for my sins. And um, <laughs> I'm somebody who, when I was really interested and involved in my activism, you know, I would meet people physically, but also a lot of what we were doing were on, was online, you know, um, which was good in some ways and bad in some times. Amazing to connect with people all around the world, but also, unfortunately... Um, we were played with a kind of tunnel vision sometimes as well. Um, and when I was reading your autobiography, I was, you know, really floored by your descriptions of the physical meeting spaces um, that you and the movement met in um, when, you know, while you were a student, while you were in the States, when you were in Europe. Um, and it was like these amazing physical places that people could gather. You know, there was this amazing description of, you know, a small meeting that... Uh, a small committee meeting, and then 50 people turned up outside. Um, and I don't know, it feels like to me today, like what we would understand as anti-racist, you know, organizing lacks that physical space um, to congregate. And I wondered if you agreed or disagreed, do you think that physical space, that physical property is essential to the movement? That's a really interesting question. Uh, well, first of all, I want to tell you that um, uh, when I began to write the autobiography, I did not uh, um, really know how to write in a descriptive way. I was trained in philosophy, so my writing was uh, uh, pretty abstract. And I have to thank Toni Morrison for, yes for re reading my first drafts and then asking me questions. What did it look like? You know, what, what was the furniture like? Uh, what were the colors? Uh, so she is the one who is uh, responsible for um, whatever um, a descriptive power the book has. It's nothing uh, like an, a good editor, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, but um, I do think that the spaces played an important role. And I think, I mean, there's so many ways in which I could answer that um, very interesting question. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether physical space is absolutely necessary, uh, but I will use your question as a way to reflect on the transformation of um, movements uh, as a consequence of the um, 
connection to philanthropic organizations. Uh, and as a, uh, you know, we did not, um, we didn't apply for grants uh, because they didn't exist at that time. We raised our own money and therefore were not uh, beholden to other forces in terms of the work that we chose to do. And now, of course, they're, they're, they're wonderful um, uh, philanthropic organizations uh, that uh, do help to support uh, anti-racist uh, movements, feminist anti-racist movements. Uh, um, but I think that um, they also often play the role of bringing the movements into the sphere of capitalism. Uh, and uh, and I just I, I, I want to use this as a way not only to think about space but to think about time. And oftentimes these these uh, grand grantors ask, well, uh, what will be the impact of the work that you do in 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 two years? What is your two year outcome? You know, what is your five-year outcome at the most? Um, and, and I'm struck by the fact that we know that the influence of movements often takes decades and generations. So they never ask, you know, what is the, what, what, what do you expect will be the 50-year outcome of the work that you're doing now, uh, uh, when your organization uh, will have probably ceased to exist. Uh, and, and those are the questions that I think are so interesting, uh, because we saw very clearly with the surge in demonstrations all over the U.S. and all over the world uh, as a response to the police lynching of George Floyd, the fact that millions and millions of people went out into the streets in the U.S. alone, something like 26 million people demonstrated. More white people demonstrated in the U.S. in the aftermath of the police lynching of, of George Floyd and the, the, the murder of Breonna Taylor uh, than ever before in U.S. history. And why did that happen? It was not simply a spontaneous response uh, to the murder of George Floyd. It was precisely, I think, as a result of the fact that organizations, some large, some small movements, have been raising these questions about structural racism for years, for decades, for for more than 50 years. And yes. And so this is precisely why when you asked me whether I considered myself a survivor early on, that, that I, I said I wanted to think about all of those who haven't made it this far because I know that the work that they did helped prepare for that amazing uh, surge, massive, collective surge in this 
and, and a new understanding of racism. Uh, because, you know, previously, and you write about this in, in, in your, uh, you know, wonderful book, uh, how, uh, Why I'm No Longer Speaking to White People About Race, Talking to White People About Race. Uh, it's, it's because the questions of racism for so long have focused on individual, individual attitudes. Uh, and the answers have been, well, I'm not a racist. You know, nobody cares whether you are, well, yeah, of course we do care. We can. But the fact that you're not a racist has no impact at all on the way racism functions in our society. And I know that uh, I'm, you know, I haven't visited Denmark uh, frequently, um, uh, but I have had some conversations with people who are organizing here in, in, in this country, and, and they tell me that they, come, they, they, they often confront uh, this notion uh, that, um, that the Danes, or maybe, you know, there's a kind of romanticization of Scandinavia. Sadly. You know? And that, and, 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 and this idea that, um, that heterogeneity, that, you know, people in, 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 in these countries are, are not racist like the ones you see in the U.S. or like in South Africa, uh, that it doesn't happen here. You know, oh yeah, there may be a few people with racist attitudes, but they don't reflect the entire country. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, this is precisely why an understanding of structural racism is so important. And I can tell you that some years ago, I, I, um, I visited Sweden. I guess Sweden is the Scandinavian country I visited most. Uh, but uh, doing research on uh, prisons. And, and when I went inside the, 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 the prisons, in, you know, outside of Stockholm, and saw the, the racial composition. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, saw who was behind bars. It was, it was African people, people of African descent, people from South America. Uh, and, and, and I said, yeah, uh, uh, there is some serious racism uh, in this country. Uh, and it usually shows up most dramatically within uh, the prison. Uh, but now there, there are all kinds of organizations. There's freedom of movement here. Are any of you familiar with freedom of movement? Yes, um, over there. Yeah, there's Maronage, right? Uh, and, and, and quite a number of other organizations. Uh, uh, so, so you have a lot of work to do. We're dealing, with, we're dealing with the afterlife, not only of slavery, but the afterlife of colonialism. These so, are my snaps. <laughs> so much in there. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question. I know, but <laughs> your response was really interesting anyway. So, <laughs> um, I kind of think, and your audience will have to forgive me because, you know, 
I'm not from here, but I think because the Scandi countries generally have been, are perceived as the establishment being progressive, particularly when, when it comes to welfare, there's almost a we're above it, um, sort of like we're above that, you know, because we've all got, we've got these particular social structures in place, or at least when I first um, sort of traveled with my book around this area of the world, that's what I came up against. Um, but let's talk about a sticky subject, the topic of activist fame or acquiring fame as a result of your activism. Um, and I wanted to know how your relationship with that phenomenon has developed over the years and whether or not you think it helps or harms a movement. Um, well, bef before I... Before I address that question, Rennie, may I um, say something that I failed to point out before when we were talking about abolition? Uh, of course. Uh, uh, that that um, the abolitionist movement as it exists in the US today owes a great deal to the development of prison abolition in Scandinavia. Uh, and in Sweden, in Denmark, in uh, uh, Norway. Uh, um, and I'm not sure whether you all are familiar with the, the ideas that emerged in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s here, uh, but some of the key texts, uh, Tom, Thomas Matheson, for example, uh, uh, on the politics of abolition were absolutely pivotal in the development of an abolitionist discourse in the US. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I, as I was criticizing uh, the uh, a kind of uh, liberalism that exists in the Scandinavian countries, I also, you know, want to point out that uh, uh, the movements here played a major role in serving, you know, as a um, catalyst for the development of abolitionist uh, theory and practice uh, in, in the U.S. Now, um, back to your question about fame. Back to your uh, sticky question. Yeah, it really is a sticky question because... Um, um, because personally, I really don't like fame. And, um, and I never sought fame. And as a matter of fact, uh, when I was in jail, uh, I uh, was very disturbed by the fact that there was this vast movement developing around the demand for my freedom. Uh, but at the same time, I was looking at... at at uh, women and other people in prison uh, who uh, had no one to advocate for them. Uh, and so at one point, um, I actually uh, demanded that the name of the organization doing the work be changed, that it not be called the National United Committee to Free Angela Davis but the National United Committee to Free Angela Davis and all political prisoners. Uh, so that once, once I was freed, we actually created a, a formation that exists until this day to deal with other cases. Uh, um, and, 
I mean, that could be seen as a, as a, as a, a kind of excuse, but, um, you know, I try to demystify um, the fame. Uh, for one, I, like I said, I don't really like, I don't really like to, I don't know why people want to be famous. I totally agree. And, 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 you know, so in weird. this era of, of, of social media, you know, everybody wants to be famous. Uh, but it's hard, you know? I mean, I can remember when I got out of jail and I, you know, I hadn't been to a party for, you know, the length of time that I had been behind bars. And so I was looking forward to going to parties and, you know, grooving and dancing. And I would go to a party and nobody would want to dance with me. What they would want to do is corner me and have a political discussion over the loud music. <laughs> so, So I had to stop going to parties. Which is rubbish. Like, you need to groove. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, I know that there are people who seek out uh, fame. Uh, but I have always been a very shy person, a uh, person who never felt comfortable um, um, speaking publicly. And, and I still you know, have the remnants of that uh, 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 feeling that, uh, that this is not my place, that I should not be here. This is, this, you know, other people love doing it. I don't love doing it. I mean, I'm enjoying hanging out with you all this evening. <laughs> but but I, can't, I just, I don't think of myself as that, um, as that public figure. And, and I had to finally realize that I was never going to reconcile the way of, I think of myself and the way large numbers of people think of, of me. Uh, and uh, there's a story that, that I've told uh, uh, many times that uh, might give you a sense of why I have learned to live with that contradiction. Uh, and it was a, it's about a young, a young black woman who's um, in the system, the foster care system, uh, whom I encountered at the university where I was teaching. Um, anyway, she was looking at the university. We, we invited a number of people uh, uh, who were about to um, finish their term with you know, foster care and they were thinking about universities. Anyway, she had a, a t-shirt on with my image on it. And I had seen so many t-shirts with, uh, with pictures of me and they always made me feel really uncomfortable. You know, why are people walking around with my face on their clothes? It's weird. <laughs> uh, so this time I went up to her and I said, uh, why are you wearing that t-shirt? Uh, and she, you know, she was very young. This was in the, I think it was in the, early 2000s, uh, and, and she didn't really know that much about me, <laughs> you know, which was fine, because you can't expect everyone to know everything. But when I asked her why she was wearing that T-shirt, she gave me an answer uh, that uh, made me realize that it wasn't about me at all. She said, 
When, whenever I wear this T-shirt, I feel strong. I feel powerful. I feel as if I can do anything I set my mind to doing. Uh, and when she said that, it made me realize that that image was not about me as an individual, but rather it was about the movement. Even though she did not think of it that way, it was a, it was a, it was a um, stand-in for a kind of collective power and force. Uh, and so I see what is often called fame as the presence of a powerful movement. Uh, and I do what I can to uh, demystify the individualism that's inherent in that particular mode of representation, but I, but I embrace the power of the movement. So that's kind of how I've dealt with that issue. It was, it was a bit of a selfish question for me to ask um, because, and I mentioned this backstage, that when I first met you, Angela, I was in the midst of experiencing a, a kind of public hyper-focus on me because of the work I'd done. And um, I, it really messed with my head. I was totally bewildered because I'd come from activism, I'd come from a group, I'd come from a movement. And then to have my work looked at as though it was almost, it was all me, just messed with, I was totally bewildered by it. Um, I always sort of felt like the work could be situated in a tradition. But then like when the work met the wider public, it was perceived as this all came from the mind of one person. And I think you speak so beautifully. You, you mentioned earlier, you know, about the idea of co-writing, almost to kind of combat that kind of perception. I know I'm ambushing you with this question, but I wondered if you might be able to speak a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. Um, you know, the... Um, the profound individualism of um, a, attached to capitalism is so destructive uh, uh, in terms of the way we think about ourselves, in terms of the way in which we discount uh, the part that uh, others play in our uh, own development, our own thinking, our own uh, practices. Um, just the, the very last book that uh, I participated in was a collectively written book. It's called Abolition, Period, Feminism, Period, Now, Period. Uh, written by four people. And um, it was an amazing experience. I've done collaborative uh, writing before, uh, but uh, never something as long as that, and never something that uh, transformed in the way that it did precisely uh, because four of us uh, were doing the thinking, the conceptualizing, the writing, and four completely different people. Well, I mean, it's interesting because we all came out of the, we all come out of the movement, um, the abolitionist movement, the feminist movement. And so we assume, okay, we, we can write this book, you know, in a couple of months. Uh, um, but we're trained 
uh, in different uh, fields, in different disciplines. There's a sociologist, there's a person in literature, there's a person in education, and there's a person in philosophy. And so once we began to um, talk about how we were going to write it, we realized how absolutely different we were. Uh, and what was so exciting was working through those differences, not working across or transcending the differences, but making the differences really matter. And um, as, a, as a consequence of writing that book, and I have to tell you at one point, I did not think it was gonna happen. Uh, I did not think it was gonna happen uh, because it, it was so disjointed and, but we wrote, you know, we wrote and then other people rewrote what we had written and we had to learn how not to be so attached to our own formulations, how not to be so attached to our own ideas. It was a remarkable experience. And, and I don't see why this isn't encouraged at the, un at the level of the university. I mean, I know why it's not encouraged. Uh, uh, but um, it, was, it was an absolutely remarkable experience that in retrospect really recapitulated precisely what we, the message we were trying to get across in the book about uh, the connection between feminism and abolition. Uh, about the experimental uh, 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 and, and um, um, uh, the emphasis on the imagination, the emphasis on uh, experiments. So, but it was hard. It was really, really hard. It sounds like it's, um, you know, it's the values in practice, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But what it, it, it taught me that while we, we often tend to assume that the way to come together is by... Um, transcending our differences. You hear that phrase all the time, right? Or uh, working across our differences until we uh, reach a point of, of unity. Unity is always assumed to be a unity of sameness. Uh, and what we learned, I think, in the writing of that book is that difference can be the very glue that holds us together. Absolutely. That we that's need that's difference. That's that's and we have to hold on to difference. Uh, and especially in societies that consider themselves to be relatively um, heterogeneous, uh, uh, homogeneous, rather relatively homogeneous and are being beset by a kind of heterogeneity uh, that is uh, 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 very startling and troubling. Uh, to think about difference as being this, 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 this generative force uh, rather than this um, negative force that takes away from unity, I think can be very helpful. Totally agree. Oh, what a fantastic place to end it. Yeah. Honestly. We've sadly run out of time, um, but I want to thank you so much. I think 
what you just said there, hopefully that's the food for thought that everybody goes away and really, you know, meditates on. Um, I want to thank you, Angela, for coming, speaking at the festival. I want to thank everybody in this room for coming and having, listening to us talk. It's been so, it's been, it's been generative, would you say? Well, you know, I think we just started a conversation. Yes, and, absolutely. And then... And hopefully you will continue it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Heartland podcast. The talk was recorded live at Heartland Festival 2022. We hope that the talk has provided insights and perspective and that you're inspired to check out our other podcasts. They can be found on our website or where you usually listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.